Until the early 1990s, the question of whether to intervene militarily in a conflict by the more powerful nations in the world was largely decided on the basis of Cold War politics. Since then, the question of when, where and why to intervene, militarily or otherwise, has become much more complex. In 2004, when this program was recorded, there was an ongoing and contentious military intervention in Iraq. The international community had engaged in collective breastbeating over its failure to intervene to stop the genocide in Rwanda ten years earlier, and yet was dithering over what to do about a burgeoning human rights and humanitarian crisis in Darfur, Sudan. We asked three key players in international peace and security what they thought were the key criteria for military intervention. Why do the most powerful nations, NATO and the UN, intervene militarily in some crises and not in others? Why Bosnia and not Rwanda? Why Iraq but not Sudan? George Robertson is a former British Defence Secretary and Secretary-General of NATO, now Lord Robertson. You know, we live in democracies. It's not a matter of foreign ministries clinically going through every day a list of potential trouble spots. We are, in democracies, responsive to public opinion. And if public opinion is informed, public opinion will say you should be acting here or you should not be taking risks there. And there is absolutely no doubt that in the early stages of Kosovo and of Bosnia, there was a growing public outrage at what was going on, and that puts pressure on the politicians, and they put pressure on the military, and options are built up for that. If you make the comparison, never mind with Sudan at the present moment, take the war in Nagorno-Karabakh. That was a violent war, but some two million people were displaced at that time, but largely limited to that region. There were no CNN reporters there during that war. There was no BBC World guys on the spot there, And most people don't even know that it happened, although Armenia and Azerbaijan are still technically in a state of war. There are still refugee camps there, and it is still a boiling sore in the region. So we have to face the fact that public opinion, animated by media coverage, has a big determining effect on the way in which governments act. Gareth Evans is a former foreign minister of Australia and president of the International Crisis Group, a Brussels-based international NGO which works to prevent and resolve deadly conflict. What's going on is competing motives, no clear agreement on criteria, different interests, different assessments of the reality of the threat in question. It probably is illusory to chase complete consistency in this respect, but we could certainly do a hell of a lot better than we have over the last decade. Whether Darfur is right now a suitable case for military intervention is a reasonable question. I think the first thing is to apply maximum political pressure through the Security Council to allow full humanitarian access and to stop the residual violence that's occurring. If, however, the catastrophe continues, there really will be no alternative if we are to save hundreds of thousands of lives uh, to having some kind of intervention. And uh, I just hope to God that the lessons of the past have been learned in that respect. For other cases, there's going to always be argument about Iraq's, I suppose, a, a classic example of just whether even the most basic criteria have been satisfied and with so much argument about what the real motive for going to war actually was. Was it weapons of mass destruction? Was it a so-called terrorist connection? Or was it a variation on the humanitarian intervention theme based on Saddam's tyranny to his own people? I mean, there was so much lack of clarity in terms of the the motives of those wanting to intervene that that uh, confused the issue right from the outset. And I think that should be put in in a separate category, the Iraq case.
as to the others, it is just critically necessary that we have a clear head as to when intervention of a really coercive kind is required, be able to draw these distinctions between the right cases and the wrong cases, and just to put maximum political pressure internationally on all the key players and institutions to get that response. In contrast, George Robertson thinks that the criteria for military intervention in Iraq were quite clear. We invaded Iraq because, as the Security Council resolution said, he represented a threat, and he continued to defy the injunction of the UN Security Council resolution. But, you know, if you look at Saddam's regime, yes, there are other terrible despots, and yes, there are other people who have used violence against their own people, but this is a man who went to war against his neighbour in Iran and who invaded a sovereign country and was pushed out and defied the Security Council resolutions that were the basis for the end of that conflict. And there was a widespread belief expressed in the unanimous resolution of the Security Council, as well as by other people, that he was going to do something again in the future, that he had ambitions to dominate the region, whether by having weapons of mass destruction or making out that he had weapons of mass destruction. He represented a serious long-term threat. And that was not just an American and British view. It's represented in that resolution of the UN. If the intervention in Iraq was so highly contested, both within NATO and the UN, what criteria do influence decisions to intervene militarily here and not there? Gareth Evans. Well, regrettably, there are no substantial criteria that are commonly accepted, would that there were. So it is very much an ad hoc mixture of idealism, humanitarian instinct, sense of common responsibility combined with crude considerations of national interest, what will fly domestically, politically, what won't. But you do have to be cautious about the use of the military tool. There are many other forms of preventive action, many other forms of coercive action, sanctions and so on, falling short of military action. And just because you say the case is not ripe for military action doesn't mean that it's not ripe for a whole variety of other strategies, some persuasive, some coercive, to be applied. But it is appropriate, I think, for everyone to be really cautious about the ultimate step of military action because so many of the consequences are unforeseeable, uncalculable, and what we do know about any use of military force is that innocent people do get caught up in it. Uh, War, however constrained and focused and targeted uh, you might want it to be, is always an ugly business, always causing massive property destruction, human misery, And the decision to go to war, even in a very focused way for apparently a very good cause, should never be made uh, lightly. George Robertson. There's no set of rules to guide you. The situation will arise sometimes over a lengthy period. But I think one is a humanitarian imperative and a lot of public interest in the issue. Secondly is the spillover effects of something that might be taking place in one country. And that's got to be measured up. And that was the case certainly in Bosnia in 1995 and Kosovo in 1999. There were good humanitarian reasons for doing what we were doing, but the conflict was spreading across borders both in terms of refugees and in terms of violence. So country, nation states and organisations will always try to establish the high ground, i.e. we are doing it for humanitarian reasons, but there are national interests and collective interests that inevitably drive final decisions.
NATO wasted no time in intervening in Kosovo without waiting for UN backing. But this has not always been the case for the international community. So what made Kosovo different? One of the key things in Kosovo was the fact that we knew what was going on. Reporters were actually on the scene in 1998, the autumn of 1998, when the ethnic cleansing was really starting with a vengeance. And the pictures of what were largely uh, ordinary European people in the forests, in the rain and in the misery with small children had an effect on public opinion, a serious impact on public opinion. And that is the point when Milosevic was threatened with violence and with airstrikes, and where he largely conformed. In the new year, it became obvious to us, with the verification mission in place, the evidence was there and visible, that he had resumed the ethnic cleansing and was doing it with devastating effect. The Russians and the Chinese made it perfectly clear that they would veto any UN Security Council resolution, and we were left with little alternative other than to face the prospect of huge refugee flows across the borders coming very quickly, as indeed they did, uh, or taking military action without UN sanction. And uh, it was pretty decisive uh, among the NATO nations that that had to happen. Yet over Rwanda a few years earlier, the superpowers had failed to heed the call and back up a United Nations intervention to try to avert the genocide. Rwanda is cited as the international community's most serious failure to intervene. Ten years on, President Clinton acknowledged this failure in an interview with David Dimbleby on the BBC's Panorama programme. In Rwanda, it, uh, as I say over and over again, it's one of my greatest regrets. But we look at it backwards and say, well, I had to know that seven or 800,000 people could be killed with machetes in 90 days. And as far as I know, there's no precedent for that in the history of the world. But the Red Cross was warning that this was the happening Red all Cross the time. The Red Cross was that's right. And I acknowledge that I think perhaps the greatest failure was we did, none of us paid sufficient attention to it. It is one of my greatest regrets. And I went to Rwanda and told them so. Eventually, we got into the camps and we saved a lot of lives. But we could have saved probably, even with the delay it takes to go there, we could have saved a couple hundred thousand more if we'd moved more quickly. I agree with that. I tried to never make that mistake in Africa again. There's no question that I could have saved lives if I had unilaterally gone in there, and we didn't. I think partly it was the bad experience of Somalia. Partly it was a preoccupation with Bosnia at the time. Partly it was a preoccupation with Haiti at the time, where there was a lot of mass slaughter going on, and we were trying to get in there. So have any lessons been learned from Rwanda? Is the world any more capable today of responding to a similar crisis, And are we paying more attention now to early warnings of impending catastrophes? Gareth Evans. Well, there's no great problem about early warning. There never has been. That's a much overstated issue. Uh, The problem has always been to get people to respond to the warnings that have been there and to take action accordingly, uh, particularly when it's long-term action uh, that's needed and not just very short-term responses. Organisations like mine have made much more systematic, I think, the ringing of those alarm bells and because we report monthly on about 70 different areas around the world where conflict is either actual or potential and um, there's not much excuse anymore I think for, for people not seeing those, those warning signs coming. But the kinds of strategies we're talking about um, do often involve the mobilisation of significant resources. 
you are often talking about long-term development strategies or political, legal, constitutional types of strategies or security sector reform, i.e. restructuring of security services, all of which we require sort of resources and effort, often with a long lead time before the imminence of the conflict is likely to reveal itself. George Robertson also believes that resources are a key factor. I've said in a number of speeches I've made since I stood down as Data Secretary-General is uh, that Rwanda is a test for us, not just in terms of the political will to do something, but the physical ability to actually carry out what we want to do. Is Europe, without the United States, any more capable of acting in a Rwanda-type situation now than it was 10 years ago? And the answer to that is no, it can't. Intervening in anything like Rwanda would be big. You would need large transport planes, and the Europeans have got uh, hardly any of them. It requires logistic chains that are in very, very short supply. So the Europeans have not, even over that 10 years, taken the opportunity of building up a capability that would at least allow them to make the decision to intervene in something as gross as the Rwanda crisis there. So the ambition is there, the procedures are in place, the processes are now there to allow decisions to be taken much more quickly. But political decisions that are not connected to military hardware might as well not be taken in the first place. Lack of resources to back up political action is one of the major criticisms levelled at UN peacekeeping. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, the UN peacekeeping force was known as Monuk. In 2004... Monouk stood by in the town of Bukavu as a rebel faction took over the town by force. Monouk's failure to defend civilians against aggression in breach of peace treaties led to criticism that insufficient resources had been deployed to allow a sufficiently robust enforcement of Monouk's mandate. Ambassador Sam Ibok, Director of Peace and Security for the African Union, spoke to us on the phone from Addis Ababa. We are not very comfortable with the interpretation of the mandate of Monuk in the DRC. We have always indicated that the deployment of Monuk in the DRC is insufficient to address the challenges. The DRC is a very vast country, and to have the deployment of the size that has been done in that country by the UN leaves a lot of concerns to us because we were sure from the outset that that deployment will not be able to meet the requirements of the day. And we have stated so in very many uh, communiques and decisions and resolutions. We have been appealing to the United Nations to deploy more robustly in the DRC and to give the mission a more robust mandate. Because one of the excuses that they are giving the people on the ground is that they are not there to confront, they are there to maintain the peace. But where there is no peace to be maintained, what happens? And if we go back to the whole argument of Rwanda, because it was again the question of the kind of mandate that is given to a deployment. So I think we have been requesting the UN, we have been engaging the UN, asking it to review the mandate that is given to the, and to give it a mandate that is appropriate to the challenges that that mission has to face. It is not the problem of those on the ground, but I think you would also know that uh, most of these uh, issues are dealt with at the Security Council, where other considerations are given superpower politics and rivalries and interests sometimes take the upper hand in dealing with issues and what the reality on the ground demands. So it is beyond our control, but we keep saying to the Security Council that the force that is in the DRC is not adequate to meet the concerns. Gareth Evans points out that different UN missions have different mandates. Some have a mandate from the Security Council only to monitor the peace, others to enforce it. All of these post-conflict 
kinds of operations, primarily monitoring but with some add-on responsibilities, are in a different class, of course, to the kind of operation we're talking about in these humanitarian intervention situations where if it becomes necessary in Darfur or if we'd done it in Rwanda, it would have involved a kind of rapid reaction capability of a specifically tasked force going in there of a sufficient size to be able to do a defined military coercion job properly. And um, the task is always to see this separate kind of function being performed. I don't think we ought to draw too many conclusions from some of those other kinds of exercises which have really not been set up as primarily military coercive operations but have had this sort of additional defensive responsibilities thrust upon them. That's not to say we can't do much better in defining the mandate, the mission and getting better resources, better logistic support and so on to a lot of these other um, in-between sorts of missions around the place because the experience has certainly been um, not wholly terrific in terms of the way in which they've operated. Sam Ibok suggests that Africa is already taking responsibility for its own problems and could do more if given sufficient backing by the UN. We must accept the fact that the United Nations is overstretched right now because I think it has something of about seven to eight peacekeeping deployments in Africa. And that is why we as African organizations are beginning to assume more responsibilities because we feel indicted. We don't just blame the international community, whatever that means, for the failures in Rwanda. We have done a lot of soul-searching, a lot of lessons learned, and we have come to the conclusion that never again shall we allow genocide to take place on our continent. The reaction time might be slow, and we need to address this problem. But the fact is that if you look at every conflict situation in Africa, and I'd like to challenge anybody to say which conflict situation in Africa does not have one form of intervention or the other by an African organization, Africans are assuming more responsibility. But you see, these problems are of such an enormous magnitude that it is not possible for Africans to do it alone. And that is why we are also in discussions with the United Nations, that where the UN is not in a position to rapidly deploy for all sorts of reasons, including the politics of the big powers, that we should be given the means, we should be given the assistance to do that on behalf of the United Nations so that we can avoid the kind of situation that we had in Rwanda. Gareth Evans also supports regional solutions. Obviously, there's a very strong case, not only in Africa but all around the world, for the primary frontline responsibility for neighbourhood peacekeeping, peace enforcement, as the case may be, being that of regional organisations with the developed capacity and resources to make that possible. And the African Union is, and the various sub-regional organisations like ECOWAS and so on are further down the track than others in terms of both aspiration and achievement um, in this respect. And um, there's everything to be said in terms of the longer-term structure of the way in which the world responds to these issues to uh, giving more and more responsibility to regional organisations. But all that said, you can't abdicate the common responsibility to address these issues when common humanity is at stake. And if the resources are simply not there, as they're not in many parts of the world, and they're very limited in Africa, and in particular if the kind of additional logistic support, heavy lift capability and so on, is not there, then there's a real obligation on the rest of the world to do its bit. And the rest of the world has not really been all that inclined to do that. So my short point is that um, while the regions have a huge role to play, 
there is a responsibility for the rest of the world to step up when circumstances demand it and that means doing better than all of us in the developed world have done so far in making resources available. Sam Ibok. I think that what has happened is that there is also an increasing fatigue on the part of the international community to deal with the problems in Africa, which are always on the increase. We understand that. And that is why we are saying that we cannot leave everything for the Security Council, for the United Nations to address, that we as Africans must begin to assume responsibilities for some of these things. Where we are concerned is that we are being told that the West does not want to send their boys to come and die in Africa. And we have pointed to the fact that peacekeeping has always been a universal venture. You have had Africans serving in faraway places as Kosovo, as in the Middle East and other parts of the world. We have had our soldiers and our young men and women die. But even if the West is not prepared to send its young men and women uh, to Africa, we are ready to do it ourselves. But we do like the means and we are saying, okay, if you are not going to send the young men here, give us the ability to do it because we can do it at half the cost of what the United Nations would have required to do the job. So there is always something to be said about the UN doing more. Africans doing more. What is the challenge is to find the right mix so that we can act in a complementary manner and not necessarily putting all the blames on the United Nations because we do acknowledge the fact that the United Nations right now is overstretched and it needs to be assisted. And it is not always given the means and the resources by the big powers, by the powers that be. Everything depends on interest and that is where the double standards comes in. Where the superpower has interest, it is very easy to get the UN Security Council to act. But that is a reality that we have learned to live with. George Robertson also agrees that more support must be given to regional peacekeeping initiatives in Africa. They have got to be ultimately responsible for it because that's the only way it'll work. You know, you're not going to have your white soldiers flown in from Poland and Spain in order to deal with these problems. That's a short-term palliative that might work. It has got to be, as we saw in West Africa, the bulk of the forces coming from the African countries where there is a direct interest in stability in the region and where there is a cultural affinity with that. But just as the European Union has now formalised arrangements for accessing certain capabilities from NATO, then I think the African Union and others who are thinking about those peacekeeping operations should think about strategic relationships either with individual countries or with organisations as well, so that they might be able to produce all of the forces, but some of the key logistics and specialisations that are required for any early interventions could be provided for by other countries. So that might be a way in which it's looked at. But at the end of the day, NATO has survived for 55 years because it was essentially a self-protection organisation with the Americans as part of that community. And self-protection, self-interest, is the key driver when it comes to defence and security. The international community is beginning to address the kinds of structural changes and resource requirements needed to make effective interventions to prevent large-scale human rights abuses and catastrophic wars in the future. Gareth Evans. One of my missions in life is to try and get much more commonly accepted, at least when it comes to the extreme form of intervention, military intervention, a set of criteria which would be applied by the Security Council and indeed anyone else in determining when in fact it's right to fight. At the moment there's a conspicuous absence of agreed criteria and everything really depends upon the movement of the moment, the degree of press attention the issue is getting, how much stress people feel under or no stress at all when it comes to taking any action. 
So it's very much an ad hoc business. In 2001, the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty proposed a set of principles for military intervention based on the concept of a responsibility to protect, which should be applied before making the decision to go to war. Gareth Evans co-chaired the commission. Well, I think there are five basic criteria, and uh, one of them is, and the crucial threshold one, is the seriousness of the threat. Is the harm to state security or human security an issue? Is it of a kind is it sufficiently clear and serious to prima facie justify the use of military force? What counts as being sufficiently serious will depend on the circumstances for internal catastrophes. You might want to set the bar a bit higher than for straightforward cross-border aggression, but that's a refinement. The basic issue of seriousness is important. Second criterion, more quickly, proper purpose. Is it clear that the primary purpose of the proposed military action is to halt or avert the threat in question, whatever other purposes or motives may be involved? I mean, there can be politically, domestically, politically acceptable motive, which is not very attractive in humanitarian or other terms, but nonetheless is important to win a domestic constituency. That doesn't matter, provided that the primary motive or purpose is of the kind I've described to actually address the threat. Third criterion, last resort, has every non-military option for meeting the threat in question been at least considered with there being reasonable grounds for believing that lesser measures won't succeed? That doesn't mean you've got to actually go through the motions of applying each of those alternative strategies and waiting sometimes for unconscionable periods to see whether they work or not. It's a matter of making a reasonable judgment that they won't. Fourth criterion is proportional means. Um, is the scale, is the duration, is the intensity of the proposed military action the, the minimum necessary to meet the threat in question? And the, the final one, a very important one, is balance of consequences. Is there actually a reasonable chance of the military action being successful in meeting the kind of threat in question with the consequences of action not being likely to be worse than the consequences of inaction. And there are many, many circumstances where all the other criteria are satisfied, but nonetheless the judgment should actually falter on the last criterion. And uh, well, whatever you think about the other criteria on consequences, I think uh, the case of Iraq is a pretty clear example of, uh, of getting that assessment wrong. But the important thing, there's nothing push-button automatic about any of this stuff. I mean, people's views will differ and different interests will come into play in the way these assessments are made. But nonetheless, if we could get a set of criteria of this kind broadly accepted, adopted informally even, as guidelines, I think we'd have a hell of a lot more clear-headed debate on these issues with a much better chance of reaching consensus about when it is right to go to war and when it's not. If there is nothing automatic about when, where and why military intervention is necessary and appropriate, are there any absolute criteria? Situations which the world cannot allow to go on without intervening. George Robertson. No, I think it always has to be on a case-by-case basis because there are no rules that you lay down in advance. There will be humanitarian tragedies where military intervention is necessary. There are areas where diplomacy has got to be involved. But what you critically have to have are the capabilities to be able to make the decisions. If your options are to do World War Three or nothing, then that's not giving you much flexibility in what you need to do. So if countries and organisations don't have the range of capabilities from diplomacy right through to sharp-edged military power, then they will be, in many ways, incapable of making decisions and they will often simply react in panic to the CNN pictures and to the BBC humanitarian reporter on the field of battle 
that's not a systematic way of doing it. It's an imperfect way of doing it. And you would have thought that in the world of 2004, we would have grown up a bit more and realised that with a range of capabilities, they'll be useful in other ways, but they will allow you the option of deciding where and when you should act in the interests of global peace and security. The bottom line is that when our conscience is shocked or should be shocked by an unfolding further demonstration of man's capacity for inhumanity to fellow man, we as a collective responsibility must be prepared to act. We have to accept that our common humanity demands a common collective response to catastrophe, to horror, wherever it occurs in the world. And however culturally distant and difficult to relate to it, it it might at first sight be. I think that's the bottom line. And in responding, we have to be prepared to do whatever it takes. Not just put our hands in our pocket and produce the resources, but in the really extreme situations, to take the necessary military action with all the, the risks and all the sacrifices that can potentially involve. If we don't accept that common responsibility, if we don't accept that as the bottom line, uh, we really are going to have a lot more Rwandas on our conscience in the decades ahead, and that's not what anybody, I think, wants.